I'm a fan of autistic people knowing that they're autistic as early as possible because positive self-identity is linked to positive mental health outcomes. So if you know that you're autistic as a, a young child and people say, oh, how do we talk about, we can't talk about that with children. I do in my practice, but I thoroughly believe that we can and we should. Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. This episode is a little different than my other episodes as it's available for ASHA CEUs through Tassel Continuing Education. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs, then stay on until the very end because that is where I provide information on how to register for automatic ASHA reporting. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. I am super thrilled to have this guest on today. And to discuss this topic, it's called How to Foster the Socio-Emotional Well-Being of Autistic Clients and Their Families. My name is Benita Litvak. If you're not familiar with me, I have a passion for all things AAC, assistive technology, and literacy. I've had the opportunity to present a couple poster presentations related to AAC at ASHA. I was a co-author in the Lou Knows What to Do book series that was published by Boystown Press. And I am a host of the Speechy Side Up podcast and a newish mom to a 14-month-old daughter. And my guest here today is Rachel Dorsey, who is a speech-language pathologist, educator, and consultant, as well as an autism rights advocate. Through her private practice consultancy, Rachel Dorsey Autistic SLP LLC, she provides therapy sessions and education to parents professionals, school districts, and organizations through coaching, consultations, in-services, professional developments, and courses on neurodiversity-affirming therapeutic practice. The services she offers as a consultant draw upon her own experience as an autistic person and her nearly six years of clinical experience working with early intervention, preschool CPSE, school-age, post-secondary through itinerant work and clinic-based settings. She launched recently the Goal Writing for Autistic Students, a neurodiversity-affirming approach, which is a comprehensive course on building strength-based goals, and it counts for 1.05 ASHA and AOTA CEUs. Rachel is an active advocate within the autistic community with a substantial social media presence, collaborating with leading autistic advocates and allies. Rachel, thank you so much for coming today. Did I miss anything in that intro? No, that was very thorough. Uh, thank you um, so much. I just want to add, this is specifically related to, to me, but I want to add that the work that I do wouldn't be possible without the the years of labor from past and current long-standing autistic advocates. That would include the Autistic Women's and Non-Binary Network. That would include the founding members of Autism Network International. I also like Foundations for Divergent Minds and the Autistic People of Color Fund doing great work. Yeah, it's important to acknowledge those that just had like years of experience ahead of me and have really influenced me in my own kind of journey as an autistic person and autistic professional. 
Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those because I think it's nice for the listeners to be able to have those references as well. So today we have a lot to go over. We'll start, you know, with our introductions and backgrounds, which we've initiated already. Then we'll talk about the discussion about negative consequences of not fostering social emotional well-being and autistic clients. We'll talk about the importance of, you know, fostering this area early on and the potential challenges that FSLPs might face when working with older autistic clients. And we'll talk about ways to overcome those difficulties. And then we'll finally wrap up with a live Q&A. Rachel, I'll let you go ahead and introduce your financial and non-financial disclosures first. Yeah, so I'm the owner of Rachel Dorsey Autistic SLP LLC and receive a salary. I receive commission from the goal writing course, and I have a lived experienced mentor for responsive feeding pro, which focuses on, on picky eating, selective eating, and avoided restrictive feeding intake disorder. And I receive compensation for contributions to that. And non-financial, I am autistic. And I have friends and family members who are autistic. Thank you for sharing that. And you will be receiving compensation for this. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I should have included that too. Yes, I will be receiving financial comp compensation for appearing on this presentation. <laughs> and we're so grateful that you're here. And then really quickly, my relevant financial relationship is that I have ownership interest in Speechy Side Up LLC and Tassel Learning LLC, and I receive royalties from the Lunos What to Do book series. I'm also a member of ASHA's Special Interest Group 12. All right, so by the end of this pod course, our goal is that you'll be able to identify the impact of not fostering social emotional well-being, identify the importance of fostering socio-emotional well-being early on in life, Identify two difficulties encountered when helping the socio-emotional well-being of older autistic children and describe four ways to overcome those difficulties. All right, so let's get into it. I'm really excited to learn from you today. I've had the opportunity to listen to some interviews that you've done, and I'm just so grateful for all the information that you're sharing with the community. So I'd love to know, let's just start off with this. What's the impact of not fostering? the socio-emotional well-being? Yeah, so starting off with a uh, kind of the downer, but like it go, it like we're going up from here. Um, oh, good. Uh, 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 um, I guess first, before talking about, um, about the impact of not fostering socio-emotional well-being, um, I, I think it's important to to define like what is socio-emotional well-being um and for for the um you know for, for the relevancy of this of this uh pod course um that i mean it in includes things like having a um a it's like a sense of identity it includes um uh, uh, having, um, uh, your mental health is in, uh, stable standing, like not, not like extremely anxious or depressed. Um, but it can also include, uh, things like having access to, um, uh, like, community resources um it can also include um things like having like a support network um of you know people that that uh like friends and family or or other community members um so socio-emotional well-being is a pretty pretty broad uh, sort of thing that, that grabs from, um, like a person's, like, it goes all the way from like a person's individual sense of, uh, you know, how, how they're, how they're, um, doing with their, you know, their, their mental health and their relationship with others all the way out to, um, 
to society and how society uh, uh, views, um, you know, autism and how society um, uh, treats, um, yeah, treats those with disabilities and the stigma of that. So um, it's it's a pretty broad thing. So, um, hence why it's hard to, like, come up with a very clear definition of it. <laughs> but, um, okay, so to then to move on to not fostering. So when you don't have those things, when you don't have um, uh, a family that uh, is accepting of an autism diagnosis, when you don't have... Um, when you don't have um, even knowledge that you're autistic, when you don't have uh, a um, a school system that is uh, a school system that views uh, everything through kind of a superficial um, observation of behaviors, lens, all of these things, it leads to some not great things oh yeah and i also want to say that socio-emotional well-being includes uh like uh knowing that that your body is your own um and that others don't have a right to to touch like to do like do what they will without you know consent so to not foster all of those things um leads to some not great things. I mean, um, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network um, discusses uh, uh, the the importance of having an autistic identity. And if you don't have that, you have like a lost identity. You don't know you're autistic. Or if you know that you're autistic, it's... uh, you know, it's shameful. You see yourself with a lot of shame um, and try your best to either voluntarily or involuntarily or like kind of subconsciously um, act uh, non-autistic, so masking, and I can go into masking a whole bunch, but I but I won't. Uh, that's the simplest explanation or simplest like discussion of of masking, and and masking leads to or prolonged masking is it causes suicidality, um, and suicide idealization in in autistic adults. So we have this really direct um kind of pathway if you don't foster socio-emotional well-being there's mat like you you get a lot of masking and then there we go it's a um not so great uh pipeline to that um in addition if uh you don't have a sense that your body is your own and um, others don't have uh, just the right to take it and manipulate it, then you're going to, I mean, think of all the therapies that we do and all the education practices that involve taking the student physically and directing them here or there to do the activity or to sit in their seat. And that's telling autistic, you know, telling people with disabilities that their body is not their own and that they just need to accept being touched. And then, so it's important to think about the uh, sexual and physical, um, I mean, there there is substantial sexual and physical abuse. Um, autistic um, children with intellectual disabilities are, uh, I believe, two times um, two to three times more likely to experience sexual and physical abuse. Those are children that have intellectual disabilities as well. 
if they don't have an intellectual disability, they are um, two times more likely to experience physical abuse. So um, I didn't really paint like a really pretty picture, uh, but I guess that's what we're gonna <laughs> get into further about how to uh, avoid these scary uh, outcomes. Yeah, very detrimental consequences for not fostering this area with autistic clients and their families. Yeah. Um, I've taught, I've heard you talk about masking on social media here and there. So, you know, that was a really nice, simplistic overview of that and, you know, how it can lead to all these different areas. I want to talk a little bit more about the sexual and physical abuse aspect and how you had mentioned that certain things that we do that involve touching our clients' bodies that kind of starts to remove those uh, layers that, you know, eventually can lead to sexual and physical abuse. Is hand over hand prompting a little part of that? Yeah, I've heard I, a lot about that recently too. Yeah, it, I, it, it is. And um, I mean, it's a practice that, listen, I was taught that in graduate school. I'm so many clinicians taught that in grad school. So many clinicians taught, um, yeah, taught hand over hand, taught, um, you know, going from behind and kind of help helping that I'm using air quotes here, the student like pick up uh, with uh, holding their hands and arms, uh, pick up after themselves. Um, and uh, when, when someone experiences um, continuous, continuous uh, someone touching their body and making it act in a way that they don't want it to act um, and they don't have a, and, 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 and it's just, um, that's just how it is. There's no way they can kind of get out of it. Um, they stop trying to, you know, they stop um, trying to, um, you know, resist, resist, exactly. And um, they just accept it. And so that's learned helplessness um, and learned helplessness. Um, I mean, so there isn't, uh, to my knowledge, research that is directly connecting uh, small uh or seemingly small, repeated, um, uh, well-intentioned uh, therapy and educational practices that involve physical touch all the way to like sexual and physical abuse. But given the, the, I mean, there's other research that talks about abuse specifically occurring within schools and so um I mean I would love I would love to see like but that would be a longitudinal a longitudinal study that would be like harder to do uh financially um but and time-wise with especially if people are trying to just fit tenure 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 um but uh yeah it hand over hand is uh it's it's just kind of one of one of these sort, sorts of, of things. Um, I mean, a, a good alternative is um, hand under hand where you uh, offer out your hands and the, the client can choose to put their hands on top of your hands. And then you, you know, kind of help the kid or client could be an adult too, like, guide through whatever physical thing is in front of them or with like signing um or with you know AAC use um but it allows them by them putting their hands like on top and you just sort of kind of moving them 
uh, to, to complete things or to, to do something that they want to do, it allows them to withdraw consent at any time. So it's both asking for consent and it allows the ability to withdraw consent. But um, even that, I, I try to keep to a minimal, um, but uh, that's a great alternative to hand over hand. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because I think anybody that's listening to this, if they were questioning the practice of hand over hand and not sure, not really knowing what to do as an alternative, you provided it. And I think it's such a, a good alternative. And I love the fact that it gives the client choice. It allows them to build trust with you and it allows them to understand, like take that step to understand like why I'm giving you my hand and we're going to do whatever it is that, you know, we're working on versus like if we go ahead and take their hand and do the task, like do, are they even processing what's going on or are they just still shocked that you grabbed their hand in the first place without, you know, asking for their consent? So I appreciate that. Of course. All right. Anything else that you want to talk about in terms of the negative consequences or should we start moving up the positive? Yeah, path? I feel like we should, we should move into, yeah, the po more positive. <laughs> okay, and let's do it. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about the importance now of fostering the socio-emotional socio well-being early on. Yeah. So, um, I, I, uh, I mean, I, I worked in um, early intervention um, in, in pre-K and I, and I still see some clients that are that age. And honestly, to me, it is the most, like, I feel the most, like, optimistic and empowered specifically there um, with that, like, population with the parents with the children because that's a great opportunity to from the very beginning uh help uh help the the parent um understand uh their child I didn't put this on the slide but um it's a it's a really great opportunity to help the parent understand their child understand um they they might feel or they likely do feel like uh de depending on like the child's kind of presentation um they might feel like distance from their child they might you know a lot, a lot of parents are are grieving um the child's not responding or acting in a way that that like shows like tip like neurotypical or obvious displays of of affection and it's really important um to to help the parent see uh to point out how the child is actually showing affection showing that they love you it is not the, you know, the, the neurotypical way, but it is still valid and it is still, um, they still need you. And this is, you know, this is, uh, like one, just one example of, of how they're doing it. I mean, I, in my head, I'm thinking of like a kid who, um, maybe starts, uh, humming like their, uh, you know, kind of happy humming, uh, when they're next to a parent and, you know, that would be, you know, demonstration of like, you know, being, uh, calm and being, uh, you know, love of loving their parent, but that typically wouldn't be recognized as a, um, of an indicator of, you know, affection, but, um, anyway, so it, it's really important to, to foster this really early on. I'm a fan of autistic people knowing that they're autistic as early as possible because positive self-identity is linked to positive mental health outcomes. So if you know that you're autistic as a, a young 
child and people say, oh, how do we talk about, we can't talk about that with children. I thoroughly, I do in my practice, but I thoroughly believe that we can and we should because we talk about things like race and we talk about different types of families that look different ways regarding like gender and sexuality. We talk about religion. And I think that neurodiversity should be wrapped up in that just along that, that there are different types of brains out there. But anyway, having knowledge that you're autistic from early on in life lays the groundwork, the foundation for how you conceptualize yourself as you get older and see that, okay, other others are, are doing things differently than the way I am. It, it, it allows you to, to understand it within the conceptualization of, okay, I'm autistic and this is kind of how uh, my autistic brain works. Uh, and, uh, you know, all brains are different and that's, that's okay. Um, as opposed to kind of starting to get into some of these negative outcomes like, um, yeah, like uh, from the beginning of seeing that you're different, thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm broken, I'm bad, I don't, I don't fit, I don't belong. Um, so that's really important to foster really early on, and a big part of that is alexithymia and interoceptive awareness, which are a little more clinical. Um, terms. So for people that don't know what alexithymia is, that's the inability to tell what or yeah, to to verbally name the emotion that, that you're feeling. Interoception is being able to sense, to accurately sense what is going on in in your body. So interoceptive awareness is, yeah, is that awareness of, of that interoception. Uh, that the research has shown that, that um, alexithymia and interoception, interoceptive awareness are uh, linked to each other. We typically think about, um, about, uh, Things like uh, autistic, like autistic people can't like read the emotional state of others. Um, but we don't. First of all, I I I, I question that. Um, but I won't go into it. Um, but we don't think about like can autistic people even tell their own emotional state. And I began working on that. Um, and uh, I, I advocate for parents, professionals to, to work on that pretty early on. Um, so it, I mean, it, it would start with like, uh, this is from uh, Mallard 2019. Um, Kelly has Kelly Mallard has a uh, I really like Kelly Mallard's interoception curriculum. Um, I, I being able to identify your own bodily sensations and then identify like what does that even mean, and then through identifying like what that even means, whether that's like. So for example, identifying bodily sensations. Okay, well, um, uh, my legs feel like jumping a whole bunch right now and I'm flat and I'm flapping. Uh, my hands uh, feel like they need to flap and then identify what that means. Okay, well, I'm, uh, I, I'm excited, but I'm excited to the point where um, I, 
it, it feels uncomfortable for my body. It's just too much uh, energy inside. Then you can self-advocate and regulate. So you can, you know, ask to, to like, uh, I just need, just need, uh, you know, five minutes to go into the sensory room and get this out of my, you know, get this out of my system. Um, just like really, you know, excited right now. I need to jump around and flap and then uh, be more regulated. Um, still possibly be like excited and happy, but that physical discomfort that can often come with being like elated um, is has decreased or isn't there. And so you're able to, um, to you're, you're, you don't feel uncomfortable anymore. Um, but a big part of this is also like, if the teacher was like, no, <laughs> then I mean, then it's pointless, right? So and a big part of this is also like the community and societal piece, like it needs to be respected. But that whole thing, I, I start working on very early on. Um, and believe it or not, I like the self-advocacy piece of everything um, is, in my experience, easier to work on with younger children than it is older children. And I guess we'll get into that a little bit later um, today. Okay. okay. You shared so many good points. Sorry, I'm like autistically monologuing. This is how we do the interviews. I ask a question and we let everybody give their points. And then I have some follow-up questions. So you're doing an awesome job. One, I know you explained some of the ways that you helped to foster this early on. Do you recommend any good children's books that can help with families to teach that identity? Yes. Oh gosh. I'm see I, here's the thing. I'm horrible. I'm like so glad I had these name like the reference names built in here because I'm really not good with proper nouns. There's a book. I'll, I'll put it in the handout. Perfect. I'm gonna put it in the handout. There's this book uh, that was uh, created by an autistic team that is about it's called like something for you. I don't know, but it is it's my favorite book that is about neurodiversity and autism and and that however you are as an autistic person whether you're um, a small child who's not speaking and uses multimodal communication whether you have you know, however you play, however you express your emotions, like you'll always be loved and you'll, you're great the way that you are. I, and I love that book. I just forget the name of it because I'm really bad at proper nouns. So I'll include it in the handout. I appreciate that. And I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I think that'll be super helpful though. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I wish oh. that there were more. Uh, there's a lot of books on autism for children that are aimed at like the sibling who like the the like neurotypical sibling who has like an autistic sibling or like neurotypical peers who have an autistic class like classmate there's a lot of books for that but there aren't many books aimed at autistic um aimed at autistic children um that's my favorite one regarding identity I do like um uh Liam's first uh I think Liam's first cut which is about an autistic um a black autistic little boy uh who um is uh who who's uh scared about like an upcoming haircut that one that one um, is pretty good about getting the, you know, potential feelings and um, everything uh, in that situation. Um, you know, for that child, like that, it, it 
it, it makes sense. It's, it's, um, seems pretty accurate. Um, and, um, showing, you know, showing children that like, if you're autistic, you could also be black, which, <laughs> um, that that doesn't happen mary not not there are plenty of uh, black autistic people that's not what i'm saying i'm saying that the representation of the multiple uh, multiple uh, marginalizations of this intersection being in in um in media that often doesn't happen so i like that book too awesome thanks for sharing that Oh, I could ask you so many questions, but I'm going to leave the questions to the listeners <laughs> instead. And is there anything else that you wanted to mention on this topic before we move on? No, I believe, but we, yeah, we can move on. Okay. So you've alluded to some of the challenges that SLPs might encounter, but what are some other ones that they might, you know, come across when helping the socio-emotional well-being of older autistic children? Yeah, so um, that with older autistic children, so I'm thinking our middle schoolers, our high schoolers. I'm thinking, I mean, even even adults. You know, the questions for children, but even adults too. Um, yeah, the system is is hard on on autistic people. Um, whether those autistic children are, uh, are, have like higher support needs, um, and, uh, use, uh, multimodal communication and, uh, AAC, um, or or they're uh, maybe mostly speaking and um, are seen as being like the quirky kid or the annoying kid or the lazy kid in class. Um, those kids often right now, by the time we see them, um, are pretty being being down um by by the system um i mean there's there's such a range of um of of uh like how autistic teenagers can can act um but i mean i'm just thinking of uh autistic teenagers who are uh so so like fed up and angry and and don't like don't want like don't want say they don't want friends say that um you know, and and think of themselves as being you know being an outcast or they are, they are an outcast. Um, I think of autistic children who um, maybe like desperately, desperately want friends. And um, even when given the opportunity to like, even when masking is kind of explained to them as like, this is what masking is, but it's like your choice. Like they're gonna pick masking because like they want friends. Um, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, also like they could just not know that they are autistic and if, and if they don't know that they're autistic, I mean, that could be at this point, it's from what I've seen, largely like parents not wanting the kid to know that they're autistic. And if you don't, they don't know they're autistic, then they, then they, they do know that they're annoying. They know that they're obsessive. They know that they're lazy. They're, they know that they're bad. They know that like no one likes them. They know that they do these weird things. Um, 
they often don't know their emotional state um, because it it was um, because uh, for so many reasons they don't, might not know their emotional state because displays of um, like a displays of emotion from autistic people um, early on in life look different. Like like the example I had of that child trying to like showing that they love their parent wouldn't be, you know, validated as like affection. And so imagine that with other emotions too happening continuously. And so if if the if the people around them aren't helping autistic people um like know their emotional state because they don't understand autistic people's emotional state how are autistic people supposed to have uh the the kind of linguistic groundwork to really conceptualize emotions and how their emotions are connected to bodily sensations. And then if those emotions and bodily sensations are, uh, are not uh, deemed important, they're not validated, then it's easy to to, for them to be deemed irrelevant or ignored and not paid attention to within the body. And so then by the time you get to high school, like people, these kids don't know their emotional state. I mean, I'll say that like the like alexithymic piece and like being able to key into like what my body is telling me is something that I, as a 29 year old, in the field who, who's autistic i'm actively working on this and it's hard and so we i can only imagine being 12 or being 15 and um and And yeah, having having um, having a, a a therapist like ask like, okay, how are you feeling? Like a lot of kids, a lot of autistic kids that age just shut down. Hate that question because it it um it's so overwhelming. Emotions are overwhelming. They don't know how to how to respond to it. Um. So uh yeah, there's a lot of a lot of barriers in the way there. Um and of course here's a societal piece, ableism. Um uh the the, the like ASAN, the autistic self-advocacy network, um as well as other research um ab like about the the views of the autistic community. Um it's pretty solid that uh, ableism is a huge barrier to um, fostering uh, positive uh, self-identity, which leads to like positive mental health outcomes. Um, and I mean, society places stigma on older autistic children and adults regulating in ways that are viewed as more obviously autistic. Um, and it is really, really hard to, um, for autistic teenagers who want to, who often like want to fit in and not be seen differently to, uh, acknowledge and accept and then act act on the need that like 
or the thing the 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 realization that they um yeah chewing on fingers and like scraping the skin off of you know the end on like nail beds um that uh if you had some sort of uh like chewy or something like that in those situations or when you feel like doing that like that that helps but like first of all a lot of 15 year olds they don't want a chewy um and then also a lot of parents they don't want their 15 year old to have a chewy um but that's just one example there's all sorts of um all, all sorts of like ways to regulate that uh both the sensory system or emotionally uh that are are like you know flapping and jumping and rocking and uh, pacing and all of these things that by the time kids are are a teenager has been kind of booted out of them so um or beaten out of beaten no I mean physically being but yeah beaten out of them um so it's really hard to like reteach it's really hard to reteach those things especially if an ableist society yeah it tells them that it's not okay yeah can you i know ableism is another one of those topics that we could talk a lot about but would you mind giving like a little definition of that in case someone is not familiar if they've heard the term but they're still not really sure like what does that mean yeah so ableism is the uh a view that um those with uh typical abilities are superior to those with uh disabilities and um also that uh those with with disabilities um don't deserve the an equal opportunities for um for an, an inclusion and, and and these sorts of things that people with typical abilities um have access to. Okay. Thank you for that. I mean, that's a really good overview of that topic. And if people are interested in learning more, they can go and take a look. But this was really informative. Is there anything else that you want to add before we go to our last question? Um that not not really. That is uh that's that's pretty I I talked I talked a lot about these things, so um, I'm eager to talk about like how to how to help. Awesome. Yeah, we're just moving on up. Perfect. All right. So let's talk about the ways to overcome these difficulties. We're going to end on a very positive note. <laughs> yeah. So um, oh, something I didn't really talk about but is important and supported by the literature is that um the the language that we use when talking about autism is important um the uh the the autistic community overwhelmingly prefers um some variation of uh identity first language so autistic person um also on the spectrum is uh, a popular one for for some autistic people but the by far the least popular is um is like the the uh person first so like have autism um yeah rachel has autism um, Rachel has autism spectrum disorder, that sort of thing. Um, and also uh, the the puzzle piece is often used to represent autism due to uh, its um, 
uh, due to autism speaks being a large uh, autistic uh, a large organization run by non-autistic people uh, claiming to help autistic people um, and yeah the, the puzzle piece originated from from them but um, and it represents that autistic people aren't whole, that there is a piece missing, hence the puzzle piece. Um, and uh, that there's research that the puzzle piece actually, um, ha uh, people have a negative connotation with the puzzle piece. Um, so uh, the autistic community uh, prefers a gold uh, infinity symbol um, to represent uh, autism, whereas like the neurodiversity movement, which doesn't just include autism, includes all types of neurodivergencies, um, it's the rainbow infinity symbol, but autism specifically the gold infinity symbol. Um, and and so there's 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 research to to show that like these are important for how others perceive um, autistic people. Um, I repeated this alexithymia. So moving on, I repeated the alexithymia interoception awareness part here um, because it is just so freaking important. Um, to emphasize, uh, to, I mean, to, to help, um, to help, uh, autistic people, um, from a young age, um, be able to identify bodily sensations and, um, and then kind of identify what that means. And, um, it, it starts with, I mean, if you're thinking of really like, how do you do that with really young children? It starts with, um, with, uh, like modeling, uh, like modeling, like, I mean, I start with modeling how like my own, you know, kind of co-regulation and kind of modeling like what my body modeling talking about what my body is doing or using um, a device to to you know say what my body is doing what um uh like what uh my to just to to, to orient children to like what their bodies are doing like oh my hands are starting to kind of flap right now like oh i kind of want to jump right now um it starts with kind of orienting um, children to that. And then um, and then from there you can build like, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, ah, some, this, this game is super exciting. Or um, uh, like dur during like maybe some slight dysregulation, negative dysregulation, like the child's uh, getting getting slightly frustrated, um, orient to like, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of see what the child's doing and then kind of co, co, do a little bit of imitating what the child is doing. Like, um, like, ah, my body's kind of stiff right now. Um, um, getting kind of frustrated over here. This is just too much. Um, so putting a label on that and then working towards uh, like, okay, well, uh, if I'm, my, my like body feels stiff and um, my, uh, my, uh, feet feel like kicking um means I'm I'm frustrated and uh then try 
trying to figure out, okay, well, what, what is causing the frustration? How do we, how do we act on that? Um, I can talk about this sort of a thing quite, quite a lot, but that's a kind of an oversimplification of how it kind of goes, even at a young age, working on it at an older age um, is, uh, I mean, no matter what, it's going to be slow. At an older age, it's even harder because um, the, the being in touch with your body is has been so invalidated so many times. Um, and so, I mean, to the last point here, I would say be okay with it taking time. Um, it takes it takes a lot of time to um, to help autistic students who feel really bad about themselves feel like they're feel like they're um, not worth it. They feel like they're bad. They feel like they're annoying. They feel like they're obsessive. Um, they don't even know what to do to feel better. Um, it's going to take time to uh, foster uh, positive socio-emotional well-being. And we need to be we need to be okay with that. We need to accept that. It's not something that in an um, that means that the goals that we write, for um, you know these sorts of things, need to keep that in mind. Little little milestones at a time, or little yeah little things at a time, because there's no way that a that a 15 year old, um, an autistic 15 year old who all they know is when they're angry and when they're happy there's no way that they're going to be able to, in the moment, identify what they need, or identify their emotion, identify what they need, act on it. That's just asking way too much. I can't even do that. So um, yeah, I'd be okay with it taking time. And also, yeah, education and discussions with parents and other professionals. Um, there's a lot of, of um, pa yeah, parents and professionals that, that, that do want to work with, like, work on, like, self-advocacy goals, want to work on, like, socio-emotional goals on, like, uh, on these things, uh, sorry, on these things, but they, they um, uh, either want it to happen, you know, within the next, uh, IEP period, they want it to happen um, using uh, a lot of like behavioral methodologies. Um, they, so there, there could be various barriers with, with some parents and professionals and um, the education discussions that you have with, with those people also need to keep in mind where they are at in in their um in their um journey and or in the, like in their mindset um so i i don't i hardly ever come in being like radically neurodiversity affirming because that's going to to be honest, scare scare a lot of people away. I kind of need to meet people where they're at and help guide to a um, to um, <laughs> to eventually kind of being more where I'm at, as well as I mean, listening to what to what they have to say and keeping um, their their um, priorities in mind too. So it goes both ways. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I agree. I think that 
the alexithymia and the interoceptive awareness could be a whole other <laughs> presentation in and of itself. I have so many questions like revolving around my head, but I know that people are going to have questions as well. So I think that a lot of that will get answered in the Q&A. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to share? Um, not, not really. Just thank you so much for, for having me. Um, yeah, so this, this has been um, nice. And it's a really important topic. It's a very personal. It's a really personal topic because um, uh, being, I mean, being autistic myself, um, uh, I think people see, might see me being like autistic SLP and like positive socio-emotional identity, but like you, people don't see me at my dark moments when like my, so my, um, I, I mean, purposefully. <laughs> I don't, you know, put that, put that out there. And so, um, I think it's, it's, a, a, it's nice to talk about how these things are really, really hard and take time. And that especially means that early on they need to be, they need to be fostered. Okay. Absolutely. No, thank you for sharing that and sharing your personal experience. This is so incredibly important and it is a different way, I feel like, than some of the ways that we typically target like social skills in therapy. Um, this is a better way. And I think that it's something that we really need to adopt. But I agree with you that we're having, we have to change a lot of minds in the process, but I like how you suggested kind of meeting them halfway. You know, we have to do that with AAC most of the time as well. So um, yeah, I, I just, I'm so grateful that you suggested this topic and, you know, clearly I wasn't totally sure what we were getting into because I said social, emotional, socio-emotional, but this has been, you know, eye-opening and super helpful. And, you know, it's, it aligns with a lot of the messaging out there just in general with raising toddlers nowadays, um, speaking of early intervention, just being respectful, um, you know, teaching them how to label their emotions and that all emotions are okay. And we need to jump on board with our therapy as well. And just respecting our clients and writing goals that are going to be more functional for them. I'm so is this type of area uh, targeted in your, your goal writing course as well? It is. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually a, a, a quite big component of it. Um, I wish the course is seven, seven hours and counts or even more uh, CEOs. Um, uh, I wish I, I was able to go into more detail about, about how it, it is. Um, I mean, I do discuss that it's going to take a long time for these types of things, like for these goals to, to be, um, uh, for it to like generalize, you know, to be in like in the moment. Um, I wish I was able to, to go more in depth about, uh, about, um, like just how hard it is as an autistic person who's like still doesn't know how they're feeling a, a decent chunk of the time so um and it's like working on it my, like myself and with like you know therapy but um yeah the the course does uh cover cover uh the like the goal writing aspect of it and and when is it an appropriate goal and how do you modify, you know, these sorts of goals depending on the the age and the um, where the client is? Okay, awesome. We'll share that. Well, it's shared originally on your introduction slide, and we can share it in the additional resources section as well in case anybody is interested. Because I think it's it's going to be extremely helpful for anybody's practice. But here are all of the references that you alluded to today. And this will be, this handout will be provided or this PowerPoint will be provided so people can 
refer to those at another time. And then if anybody isn't already following you, this is your Instagram handle. Is there anywhere else that you want to point them to if they're looking for more information? Regarding like finding me, my website is dorseyslp.com. No R, just dorseyslp.com. <laughs> I want to see what's on there. Great. Thank you so much, Rachel. This has been incredibly informative and I'll open up the Q&A now so that we can answer some of those questions that people might have. All right. Sounds good. Guess what? This episode is worth 0.1 ASHA CEUs. However, listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee ASHA CEUs or a certificate. If you want to earn ASHA CEUs for this pod course, please visit tasseltogether.com to create an account, pick a membership level, and access the course materials. Tassel will automatically submit your course participation to ASHA once the course requirements are met. Remember to check the course details section under each course on the website for completion deadlines. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this pod course. <laughs>